Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss training concepts, interview behavior experts, and explore how to deepen the relationships between dogs and their people. Today's episode includes myself, Ursa Acri, a co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. It also includes myself, Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And I'm Kayla Fratt, the owner of Journey Dog Training in Missoula, Montana and online. So we have a special bittersweet announcement today. (laughs) Um, Today is going to be the last episode that Marissa formally joins us as the Canine Conversations team. Um, She's moving on to start her own podcast, Pause and Reward, where she'll continue to discuss training topics and explore concepts like the human canine bond and the relationships with our loved ones. Um, We're super excited for her. It's going to be awesome. Um, You can find that podcast on her site. Yeah, of course. We're sad to lose you, but we know you're going to do amazing things. Um, (laughs) I know. Um, On her site, pauseandreward.com, and that's P-A-W-S-A-N-D, reward. Um, and that's launching in August. So congrats, Marissa. Thanks, guys. And thank you for all the listeners. Um, it's been an amazing experience to be part of this with Kayla and Arsa for the past year and a half. We've reached like wow. 60,000 really? downloads. Like, it's pretty you. awesome. Like, we, we this has just been an amazing opportunity, and it's been amazing to connect with listeners in person and online. And um, yeah, it'll be similar, but we will be exploring a um, little bit more about the relationship side. So. I'm very excited. Yay. But hopefully the but ladies also, will have yeah. me back. Sprinkle <laughs> sure me in somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we should just have a Marissa feature. Like, and now it's a Marissa minute. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, today we're going to do myth busting part two. So we had so much fun doing this original myth busting episode where we just sort of did um, off the cuff, like discussed some common myths and misconceptions in dog training and behavior and um, debunked them that we wanted to do another episode because we realized there were so many more that we didn't get to. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, Should be a little bit shorter and uh, we're going to kick it off with Marissa with our first myth. So Marissa, do you want to dive into that? Yeah. So um, most often we hear pet parents say or suggest that they should take a six-week dog training class um, and that they'll, you know, sort of nip the problem in the bud or (laughs) that their dog will be fixed. And we're here to say that, you know, maybe your dog learns the basic foundational skills in a dog training class. However, your dog is always learning and they're always interacting with their environment. And this is why we, we commonly say that behavior is fluid and it's ever changing. So um, the myth is that if I go to a dog training class or if I have one training session that like my, my dog will be fixed and I don't have to deal with this problem ever again. And that's really not the case, especially when um, we also take into consideration as, as if you get a new puppy, um, you might get that recall to a really good place when they're four months old, but then when they hit adolescence, that recall might look very different um, because their motivations have slightly shifted given their developmental stages. And so 
it's, it's important to know that, you know, training is more like to have a mindset shift that like training is learning. It's not just, we train the dog and then we're done. Um, it is more that how can I help my dog make the best choices throughout his or her life? Always. Um, you might not have to start from scratch with a particular behavior, um, especially if you've given them some foundational skills. However, we want to make sure that they are growing and learning the right things that you're expecting from them um, throughout their entire life. So, I mean, my dog is 11 and a half. He's now engaging in different behaviors because he's older. And so I'm going to, um, you know, teach him new skills. And again, it, he's 11 and a half, right? So I think it's important to make sure that we're, we're, constantly helping our dogs learn the desired behavior that we're looking for. Anything to add, ladies? I guess one other thing I'd like to add is that a lot of behaviors kind of crop up in the context of the home specifically. So making sure that, you know, if your dog has learned not to jump up on people in the context of your six-week class, that's mm -hmm. great. But if you don't keep that training and practice up in the context of your home, your dog can learn to politely greet people at training yes. class and then continue to jump up at the door. And that's even more true with kind of more the sort of complicated behavior problems that all of us spend our times getting paid to deal with, where um, taking your dog to a six-week obedience class is not going to fix their the fact that they bite other dogs when their dogs try to come and borrow their toys. Um, going to a six-week obedience class or an eight-week obedience class is not going to fix a dog that even barks at the door, you know, because that doesn't happen at the yeah. training building. So um, kind of your standard obedience class just isn't, it's not the tool made to fix every yeah. problem. I kind of think of it, um, I think of a lot of things now through a parent lens, now that I'm a parent of a five-year-old. Um, and uh, now that he's like the last couple of years, he started like being a human and not just a little thing that eats and poops and sleeps. <laughs> and so I think of it in terms of, it's like asking a question, um, <clears throat> when will my child finish learning algebra versus when will my child finish learning how to be a good member of society? Oh, that's a good <laughs> yeah. analogy. So like, you can say like, okay, I've learned algebra. Like you can throw uh -huh. me any problem. I can solve it. I understand the concepts. I can do it. Versus like, I'm still learning how to be a good member of society at 37. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like your dog can learn sit easily, quickly. They can become fluent in it easily, quickly. But to say that a dog is well-trained or well-behaved is really a higher concept of like, the dog understands how to learn and you and your dog kind of um, understand each other and you have a relationship and you're thinking about each other's needs and you get to get along and, and all of that is a work in progress. Yeah. And there's no one class that can teach you how to do that. So that's kind of how I think of it in my head is like, there's learning a, a, like a, a single thing and then there's learning a very complex thing that takes years and Sometimes it's just never ending. Um, yeah. So. Well, and I would almost even argue that, you know, you can learn the rules of tennis probably in a couple of days if you really sit down and like mm -hmm. want to know every single, I mean, I shouldn't have picked tennis because I know nothing about tennis. Um, and, oh, okay. Here's a better example. I'm taking riding lessons right now. Oh, cool. So I can sit down. I'm loving it. I just did my first practice of the whole dressage test. Nice. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, it's so fun, guys. Um, 
And, um, you know, I can sit down and memorize all of the rules of dressage and all the things that I have to do to go through an exam or a test or whatever. I like, obviously, I haven't done this because I don't know the terminology <laughs> still. Um, but that's really different from saying, I'm done with dressage. I now know everything because even, you know, even with like the algebra example or with dressage, I would argue there's still always continued learning sure. that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, you can learn the rules of something. Your dog can learn, you know, that the, the word, the cue sit means put your butt on the ground, but there's still always improvements and making sure they can do that in a variety of situations mm -hmm. and making sure they do that quickly and making sure they do that when you, when anyone asks or when you're lying on your back, staring at the ceiling, yeah. you know, there's all, and we've talked about this in kind of our generalization sorts mm -hmm. of episodes. And it's, um, it's almost like that. a lot of people think of it as finished when they can get the dog to do it. Like I got my dog mm. to sit so he knows how to sit. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> that's different than the dog understanding the concept and generalizing it and being able to do it on their own and being able to do it quickly. Like just because you've got them to do it once or a couple of times doesn't mean that it's, oh, that's so that good. knowledge is transferred to them. <laughs> so yeah. you knowing I mean, how to get your dog I've to do it. I've done a layup. Yeah. Yeah, like I I did a layup yeah. at some point <laughs> in high school gym class. Mm -hmm. Three out of seven hundred mm -hmm. times, I did it correctly. I'm five foot two. For those of you guys who don't know me, so I, and I'm not good with the whole ball sport thing. <laughs> and that, does that mean I know how to do a layup? Absolutely yeah. not. Mm -hmm. And could I do it when there's a defender involved? Oh my god, no. Right. Right. Um, you know, and, and if my gym teacher then started punishing me every time I didn't do it correctly because he'd seen me do it a couple times, I would never I think try. we would all recognize that that's obviously unfair. Yeah, I would never try to do one again if that happened. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I think we've busted that one, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. We're just saying <laughs> yeah. no. Myth busted. <laughs> Myth um, busted. Kayla, you're next. <laughs> Kayla, you're up next. And right. uh, Kayla's going to introduce us to the myth of uh, you shouldn't comfort a scared dog because it will reinforce their fear. So. Yeah. So this is one that I was actually taught when I was a kid. Um, you know, we uh, we went to the local obedience trainer when I was a little kid. We got Maya, our, our lab, who just died last year um, when I was in fifth grade, I think. Um, she lived a very long, happy life. And um, yeah, we were told, you know, during thunderstorms or whatever, don't don't coddle her, don't coddle her, don't comfort her, um, because that'll teach her that acting scared during a thunderstorm gets attention. Um, <laughs> I just, I just, I just can't with it. I know I can't either. I heard you laugh and I was like, that's what I'm feeling too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there, I think there's a couple like pretty key issues here. So one being if your dog truly thinks the only way to get attention from you is to behave in that way, are you actually meeting your dog's needs and being a good dog owner? Man. Great um, point. <laughs> you know, I think your dog should be able to request attention and comfort from you. That is why you have them. You request attention and comfort from them all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think there's a welfare issue there. Um, and then there's also the question of whether or not you can actually reinforce fear at all. Um, because fear 
you know, it's an emotion. Um, your dog is not necessarily attention seeking. Your dog is seeking comfort and soothing your dog during a thunderstorm is likely to help them feel better about that thunderstorm. And when I'm dealing with clients who are really, really skeptical about this, what I always ask them is, can we just try it for a couple weeks Mm -hmm. and we'll track it um, and we'll see if it gets better or worse. And if I am wrong and it gets worse, we will find another option. And I'm so far never wrong. It (laughs) always gets better. Um, but that I found that really helps me just deal with clients who are really, really suspicious of the idea of comforting a scared dog or rewarding a barking dog. Um, cause yeah. that's another one, you know, when I say, oh, your dog barks at the door. Great. Just do a treat mm-hmm. scatter when someone knocks mm-hmm. on the door and they're like, oh my God, doesn't that teach him to bark at the door? It's like, he already knows how to bark exactly. at the door. <laughs> he's doing it. Um, he's doing it all on his own. He's doing it consistently. You know, he's got, he's got this down, um, rewarding, giving him food is not going to strengthen this behavior. And if it is, and I'm wrong, then great. Let's keep track. Let's try it over a couple of weeks and we'll try something else when we can tr- clearly see that trend line. I have to um, emphasize something that you just said that just like wowed me um, that I hadn't ever thought of it this way before, that there's a difference between seeking comfort and seeking attention. A, mm-hmm. a big difference. And I, and I think like, I, yeah. I, I know that we, you know, we don't want to get too far into the weeds with anthropomorphizing, but sometimes it's all we can do is to empathize with a similar experience. But like, I know that like, for me, I can immediately tell the difference or recognize the difference between when I need someone to comfort me and when I'm looking for attention, like Mm -hmm. very, very different feelings. And How, and how do you know? Or so like, what, what comes up for you? I'm just curious. Like when you're, when you're comforting or needing comfort or attention. I'm thinking about like feeling sad or stressed or distressed about something when I just mm-hmm. need like a presence or like a hug or somebody to hold my hand or like mm-hmm. just listen to me. That's a very different feeling from like, I have this funny story to tell and I want everybody's attention and I want them to laugh at it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. when I need comfort, usually attention is the last thing that I want. Like I don't want to be in a spotlight. It's not about getting validation for Mm -hmm. like myself or my personality. It's about, I really need help to feel better or to get through this. Um, yeah, it's, it's not, this is reinforcing for me because somebody is paying attention to me. It's, I, I just need help. I need support. Um, I don't know if that's the the best way to describe it. I think I can give a little example. Um, with so my dog Barley, um, when he's doing engaging in attention seeking behaviors, he wanders over to me with a toy in his mouth and his tail wags and he sits and he stares mm-hmm. at me. That is attention seeking for Barley, and I do not reward that <laughs> um, because I would, you know, yeah, I would have toys piled to the ceiling on my lap <laughs> yeah, at all she times would. if I you rewarded that would. behavior. Uh-huh. And I'm actually really strict about pretty much never rewarding it and pretty much never letting anyone else who's in my house reward it. He gets his needs met very well elsewhere, um, which helps a lot. Um, Versus today, actually, it was funny. He sees me wearing a mask all the time. He's been trained by multiple other people wearing a mask. And today there was a guy who was social distancing. So um, we're walking and we were kind of coming up to a T intersection and the guy stopped um, to let Barley and I walk past, um, Barley and me walk past. 
and um, the guy's carrying a bag and he's wearing a mask and he just kind of stopped and stared because he was letting us maintain well over six feet. And all of that yeah. together all of a sudden was like very weird to Barley. Um, uh, which is, again, kind of funny because I've done so much work with the mask, yeah. but, you know, it was, it, it's a big dude. You know, it, there's all sorts of other things going on, which I think is also an important note. So just put that away there, guys, that like just because your dog is used to you wearing a mask doesn't mean he's going to be fine with every um, everyone wearing a mask in every context. And I, I, you know, Barley was clearly worried about him. His hackles were up. He was really looking over his shoulder. He wasn't barking or lunging or anything. But, you know, as soon as we got far enough away from the guy, I got down on one knee. I rubbed his butt. I told him how beautiful he was <laughs> and how he's smart and handsome. Aww. And, you know, and we felt better yeah. about it. Um you know, that wasn't attention-seeking, and he actually wasn't comfort-seeking at that time, but I gave him comfort, and hopefully that means that next time we run into a weird guy with a mask and a, and, and a tall statue and a, you know, a grocery bag and whatever, right. you know, like, hopefully that means that we're going to feel better next time. Well, and there's also the issue of, you know, fear being based in an emotional reflexive response to something that's perceived as a threat versus a behavior that can be called up at any time. So like, you know, again, not to anthropomorphize too much, but to put it in terms that maybe someone else can relate to, I'm terrified of heights, like terrified of heights. It's really the only thing that really freaks me out. Mm -hmm. And um, I can conjure that feeling. Like uh, Andy, my husband was showing me this video last night of these people hiking this like razor edge ridge of a mountain oh, in I just Germany saw, or something. I just saw that video. That is insane. It's, like, and like, I could, I could watch about five seconds of it without starting to feel like nauseous. Yeah. <laughs> but as soon as it stopped, that feeling went away. So I can conjure that feeling, but it's, it's sort of like a shadow of the actual fear that I would feel if that were me up there on that ridge. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I can't just call up being afraid to, as a way to, to use it, to get something I can, as a human, I can act like I'm afraid. We don't know that dogs have that ability to say, well, I don't feel the emotion of fear, but I'm going to behave as if I do. Yeah. Um, I don't think that we have evidence to show that dogs can do that. Well, and like, um, I think one of my mentors, like this is forever ago, they were like, there is easier, less stressful ways to get your attention than to be, than, than to engage Shivering, in, drooling. <laughs> yeah, in a significant amount of sort of like what, uh, Jean Donaldson would call like, I think she would say this, like more expensive behaviors in the sense that like, mm -hmm. like you're, you're, you're changing your, your uh, emotional state. Like, like you're saying you're drooling, uh, cortisol is racing. Like what, like there's just easier ways to get your pet parents attention by probably offering sit or something like that. Like, so I don't yeah. know if your dog is going to like take the marathon approach versus like the one mile approach to get your attention right. in the future. It just isn't, right. yeah. it's not, um, it's not parsimonious. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. A good point. yeah. Yeah. And I do uh, like, I I think that is a really good point because I do, you know, I do struggle. I don't know if I struggle a little bit with this concept, I guess, but more, I do think we have seen people where they have kind of created these anxious looking motor patterns in their dogs mm -hmm. 
because that is the only way their dogs can get attention from them. So like if you do ignore your dog when your dog is being good, and then as soon as your dog whines at the door or whines at you, um, I do think like, Just like with the kids. flip side of this, <laughs> it, mm-hmm, it absolutely is possible to train your dog to whine or pace um, and do kind of the some of these behaviors that look like fear or anxiety in order to get attention. Um, but generally, those behaviors would be attention seeking in the first place, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where like this myth yeah. probably comes uh-huh. from, yeah. is people's inability to tell the difference between a dog who's whining at them because the dog wants attention and the dog who's whining because he's terrified of the thunderstorm and assuming that because comforting, because giving attention to the dog who wants attention makes the problem worse giving attention to the dog who's scared of the thunderstorm is going to make that worse and i think that's probably where this comes from and i do want to just acknowledge that there are times where no 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 i am going to ignore a whining Mm -hmm. dog Mm -hmm. um it's just and and again this is where it comes down to for me um and with my clients taking data um and making sure we have a trend line because there are times, especially because I work with my clients remotely where I can't see. So I can't really say, you know, yes, this looks like fear to me and we should Mm -hmm. therefore comfort it or no, this looks like attention seeking. So we shouldn't, um, you know, like let's try it. Let's, we can fix it if we, if we Mm -hmm. make it worse. Um, but let's, let's take that data and watch that trend line because, there are times where it does get worse. One other thing that I wanted to mention before we move on is like at the end of the day, and this kind of, Kayla, goes along with what you were saying. I would much rather risk potentially making like a nuisance behavior a little worse than leaving my dog out to dry, like hanging them out to dry when they're really afraid and Mm -hmm. need emotional support, like Mm -hmm. help. And because we can't ask our dogs like, you know, what are you feeling right now? Why are you behaving like this? We have to make some assumptions based on their behavior and based on the context. And I would always much rather risk that, like just potentially making a problem behavior a little worse that I can fix later than having my dog just be desperate for that support and me blow them off. Like that's just, to me, that's not, I I can't do it. Like I, I won't do it. Um, because yeah, I just don't 100%. feel like that's the right choice. So, um, and and that's, I mean, that's a false dichotomy. It's not either or, but even if it is like the people who want to boil it down to, you know, well, what if you are reinforcing a, um, a bad behavior? Well, I'll take that risk if it means that I'm comforting my dog. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, that's I think a good that's point. a great note to end on. Yeah. All right, so we're going to move along to our next myth, <laughs> which uh, we, we hear, um, you know, as trainers from other trainers, and I know I've had a lot of clients that hear it from other trainers, which is that um, aversive tools don't hurt. So this is a really complex one, and I feel like we could even do like an entire episode on this. So we'll try to boil it down to its uh, component parts. But um, <clears throat> this is something that you hear a lot from trainers who rely heavily on aversive tools such as shock collars, pinch collars, um, to justify the use to, I think, most often people who are, um, are wary of using them or who feel bad about using them. And um, to, to dig into it a little bit, 
we have to understand a little bit about like what punishment is and punishment is anything that reduces the likelihood of a behavior happening. Right. So when we hear the word punishment, humans in general, we tend to think of the most dramatic versions of it. So like hitting or yelling or whatever, but really punishment is anything that's unpleasant enough for it to, when it's associated with a behavior to reduce the likelihood of that behavior. Um, so some human examples, um, you know, punishment could be um, a fine that you have to pay. Um, punishment could be someone, you know, refusing to talk to you. Um, punishment could be a variety of different things that don't involve physical pain, even though that's what we think of first. Um, but the important point to note here is that something is only punishment if it actually affects the behavior. So we could say, I'm going to punish my dog by spraying them in the face with a water bottle every time they jump on someone. But if they continue to jump on people, then what you're doing is not punishment because it's not affecting the behavior. So within the context of behavior science, we don't say something is a punishment unless we can see that it has a measurable effect on behavior. So to tie that back to our myth, um, in order for an aversive tool to work as a punishment, it has to be something that the dog wants to avoid. So it has to be either painful or uncomfortable. It has to be aversive in some way. And whether it's aversive or not is really up to that particular dog. Um, so we could say, oh, this, this is aversive because it's, I'm going to put it on the dog. I'm going to, you know, give the color correction or I'm going to use the, um, use the remote to give a correction and the dog is going to find it unpleasant, but the dog might not find it unpleasant. Um, the dog might blow it off. And I've seen, known dogs that blow off physical correction as if they don't really even notice it. So in order for a shock color or a pinch color to be a punishment, it has to be something the dog wants to avoid and therefore either unpleasant, uncomfortable, or painful. It has to be somewhere on that spectrum. And you'll hear your trainer say, well, it's just a tap. It's like a, it's an interruption. It's getting their attention. And there's also a difference in training between an interrupter and a punishment. And we deal with that a lot, even in positive reinforcement-based training. I'll, ha I'll have people say like, well, every time, you know, my dog jumps on the counter, I ask him to sit and it stops him from jumping on the counter. And I often have to sort of point out like, well, it stops it in the moment, but it doesn't stop it ongoing. It's, it has no effect on the behavior ongoing or the likelihood of the behavior occurring. So that's not working as a punishment. It's just interrupting. So I think that the argument that colors, training colors, shot colors, pinch colors don't hurt is a little disingenuous because they're sort of arguing against them being effective at all. Um, so it's one or the other, either it's ineffective or it's unpleasant. <laughs> and either way, we could talk a lot about why you would feel the need to use them. So um, what do you guys think? Do you want to weigh in on that at all? Or I think, I think I like your point that you just made about it being a little bit disingenuous because, and my kind of response when someone says, oh, it doesn't hurt, it's just an attention getter is why aren't your other potential attention getting tools mm -hmm. yeah. working? You know, if it is just a tap on the shoulder, why aren't you just tapping your dog on the shoulder? Yeah. Um, you know, why is it so much more effective? And I would argue that's because it's a lot 
more salient, a lot more intense than a tap on the shoulder in some cases. And I know there is a huge spectrum in shock collar use. For sure. You know, there's a, a big difference between, um, you know, I work with conservation detection dogs and there's a big difference between, yeah, we're going to blast a dog who is in the midst of chasing one of the rarest mammals in North America. <laughs> um, and that is, I, I'm not saying that I like right. that. I would, I have other tools I would use first, uh, i.e. a long line and a muzzle, mm-hmm. um, which is what I do with Barley when we're working around black-footed ferrets. Um <laughs> But that is very different from um, yanking on a pinch collar or pulling on a pinch collar when you're walking your dog. There's a difference in stakes and therefore a difference in what I am willing to do. And I fully acknowledge that and and anyone, I hope, who uses an e-collar as a way to try to stop predatory behavior is, yeah, it freaking hurts. And it should. And I would also hope that most people who do that recognize that it does not actually influence that dog's predatory behavior in the long term, because I have not seen many cases where that dog then, after getting blasted for chasing the antelope once, um, doesn't do it again. Yeah, I think um, that- I know that it does happen, but I would say in the vast majority of cases, um, and shot collars are very, very common where I am in Montana. Yeah. Um, those dogs are wearing those collars for life, so it's not actually training. It's not actually stopping the dog from engaging in the behavior next time, even though it does hurt, which I think is an also kind of interesting part of this false dichotomy is that it can be painful and not produce long-term learning. Absolutely. And I think I think one of the reasons why having these discussions is so difficult is because of this sort of tendency for people to say like, oh, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. And I think that there can be productive conversations about how or if or when to use these kinds of tools. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, again, Kayla, like you, and I know like Marissa, it's not my tool choice, but you know, I'm, I'm interested in talking with people who are, who know how to use it appropriately, at least within the, um, the parameters of learning theory, like where they can use it to effectively treat behavior. Um, But I think that when we start from a place of, oh, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt, when we're literally undermining the mechanics of how it could work, that doesn't do the the tools any favors if we're not honest about how they should be working. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, how are we defining painful? How, how do you know what is painful? Because truly, if we go back to, and we loop it back to what you said, Ursa, if the behavior is going down, then it is punishment. And it, that, that it's aversive. It's aversive. Yeah. And so, um, if something's aversive, I am, whether it's painful or annoying or whatever, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just not something that I want to, be using to, to try to refocus my dog or I don't know. Like, I love what you said, Kayla, about like, well, what, are, what other interrupter tools are you using? And like, <laughs> sometimes there are no other interrupter tools that folks are using. This is the one that they lean to like, okay, well, right. I'm just going to use to like, and it's, it's always so funny to me because people are like, well, I don't want to have to carry treats or I don't want to have to carry like a squeak top toy or I don't want to have to have other interrupters but but you you can grab the collar put it on the dog and grab the remote and like grab I, the like remote. to me that <laughs> is so weird 
Like <laughs> you wearing the remote is the same as me wearing a fanny pack. And I would much prefer to wear mm-hmm. a fanny pack around my waist and like be doling out chicken than, than wearing a remote. I don't know. So I, I yeah. Well, again, I think we just have to be out the potential shortcomings of any, any training method. And I'll be the first uh-huh. to say like there are pitfalls to using food and training, mm-hmm. um, you know, and here's what they are potentially, and here's how you can avoid them. But I think that, you know, again, it's disingenuous to say like, no, there's, there's, you know, there's no potential risk. There's no yeah. potential fallout. There's yeah. no potential harm done. Yeah. Um, again, it doesn't do any service to either the people that, you know, are trying to get help from a trainer or to the training method itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, when I hear someone say, make the blanket statement, like, oh, it doesn't hurt or the dog doesn't mind it, or it's a tickle or whatever, I feel like either they're being dishonest or they don't understand don't learning understand theory. It, yeah. And to yeah. me, like someone who doesn't understand learning theory should not be using a tool like that mm-hmm. because they're Absolutely. probably not doing it right. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I think it is important to point out, like I've actually considered a vibration collar for barley as a recall cue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think it is possible. We've seen this done with yeah, deaf dogs and I've dogs. heard of people doing it with dogs that can hear mm-hmm. to use. Um, and I, uh, some dogs do find the vibration really aversive mm-hmm. as well, um, which I think is important to point yeah, out yes. um, that just because it's a vibration and not a shock doesn't mean it's not super. Some aversive. dogs find the clicker aversive. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. many. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. yeah. But it is like it is possible to use some of these tools. And I think there are situations where it makes sense. And I actually had been considering a vibration collar for barley because we do so much off leash hiking um, as a recall cue, mm-hmm. um, because there are times where I'm not convinced he can hear me. Mm-hmm. Um Instead, I have chosen to teach him to come to, um, you know, how your backpack has like that little survival whistle on the Mm -hmm. chest strap. Um, He now comes to that. And I actually just got a um, and this is this is another point. And and it's a bit of a different tangent as far as like why I I would not want to use a shock collar. Um, I just got him a GPS collar from Garmin. Um, I got the no shock Astro. I am obsessed with it. (laughs) Um, And this last weekend we were out. and I hadn't seen him for a minute or two, you know, so I pull out the little handheld and I can see he's 150 yards away, which is pretty mm-hmm. freaking far. Um, so I whistled um, with the backpack and then I called again uh, or, and I called um, and I could watch on the handheld. It took him three or four minutes to get back to me, but I could watch on the handheld that he was coming back to me. And it probably took a t- a, like two minutes before I heard his bear bells, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah, he was way too far away from me in that situation. But if I had started blasting him with an e-collar because I didn't know where he was and I thought he was blowing off my oh recall, my yeah. I would have just been punishing his recall because I, I a week ago before I had this um, – GPS caller would have assumed he was ignoring mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I would have assumed that he had not gone that far and that he was ignoring me. And that's why I hadn't seen him. And I would have, if I had had a shot caller at my disposal, I probably would have reached for it in frustration and I would have been yeah. wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would have punished the and exact you would have behavior punished that coming you wanted. Back. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You wanted to reinforce. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, yeah. You I mean, guys need to do a whole episode on this. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it's a sticky topic. It's a sticky it topic is. because it is. I think that um, I think it's hard for you know positive reinforcement based trainers to talk about. It's almost feels taboo to talk about because it's mm-hmm. like it, it's like um, you know speaking it into existence. Like we can't talk about it without 
having people think that we're endorsing it, which is not the case. Like we can have, we should be able to have a discussion about the practicalities of Mm -hmm. these trading methods and tools because there are people out there using them. And I mean, at the end of the day, my thing is if there are people out there using them, I want them to be using them correctly. And I want them to be following Mm -hmm. the laws of learning theory so that they're using them as little as they have to be. And they're using them as fairly as they possibly can. Yeah. And you're, you're right that like, I mean, we, we should be able to have the conversation because I think it is really hard when people, when trainers are shaming clients for using them. Um, I think that that is, I mean, when you have a dog and you don't know what to do and that's what they're selling at PetSmart or that's what you find on Amazon, or that's like the first ad in Facebook because of, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you, you thought about a shot caller one time seven years ago and it's, and it's now an ad on, on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Like that's how creepy it is. Like, I yeah. We really can't shame our clients and like asking a question and seeing like getting really curious with them and seeing if that's working for them and coming up with other management strategies that will help them feel mm-hmm. better about taking it off or even like engaging with them for a few sessions and, and, you know, sometimes removing that tool is so scary for someone. And if they have a dog that's engaging in either reactive or aggressive behaviors, like that becomes a liability for them. And just sh- shaming them is not the way to go about it. Like getting mm-hmm. curious with them, talking, talk, talking with them about it. Chances are they don't want to be using it either. Um, mm-hmm. Especially if they've looked you up and it's very clear on your website that you are, don't use those tools. Um, right. Chances are that they don't want to be using it. Um, so yeah, I think being able to talk about it in an emotionally te- intelligent way is really we're going to make the yeah. most difference in that, in that aspect, whether we're yeah. talking to colleagues or whether we're talking to our pet parents. Yeah. Emotionally yeah. intelligent rather, is, the, is the really big point there. Cause yeah. I think I was like, <laughs> I'm always inclined to say like, it should be, uh, you know, we need to not do it emotionally, but we do like the emotion is important, but it needs mm-hmm. to be intelligent. Emotionally intelligent. Yeah. I'm sorry, Kayla, we start talking at the same time. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, and we should, we should wrap, wrap up. this up because it's just too fun to talk about. But, um, the last thing that I, th- and I think I've kind of started touching on this a little bit, but I think, um, kind of thinking about like a cost benefit analysis is fair with these tools. Um, you know, if, so if, and when Barley and I deploy again for black footed ferret research, I actually think that our contract with, um, the people who pay for us to do these surveys requires that the dogs wear a shot collar. Mm-hmm. So there is a chance that at some point my dog is going to be wearing a shock collar, which scares the bejesus out of me as far as the Facebook dog training police coming after Uh, me. uh. Um, But I also, you know, I feel good about the training that Mm -hmm. we've done so that I won't need to use it. You know, the long line and the muzzle and doing everything we can so that I don't see that I will ever need to get Mm -hmm. to that point. And if we were to get to that point, I feel comfortable saying, you know what? Yes, I am comfortable shocking my dog to save the life of a black-footed ferret. Because your dog, no, none of your client's dogs should be in this situation. Mm-hmm. You should never have your dog in the situation where they could get the get a hold of a black-footed ferret. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dog, it is our job for him to be in a situation where he could. Um and that is very, very different from this morning on our walk, shortly before we saw Mask Man. Um, I saw a guy walking his pointer off leash next to a busy street um, with his e collar mm-hmm. in his hand. Um, yeah. Why? why? <laughs> you know, what is the be- Why are you holding an e collar remote instead of a leash? Yeah. 
Um, and I am being very judgy here, but that yeah, no, <laughs> like it upsets me because I. I am not someone who's comfortable with e-collars, but I have gotten to the point where I'm comfortable with the idea of my dog wearing an e-collar if and when that needs to be part of our our life for the wildlife detection work that we do. Because I put him in a situation where no sane person should be putting their dog in that situation. Your dog should just be on a leash. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think the, that cost-benefit analysis is, is really key and important to me. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think you know, that's a great point is that a lot of the time we choose to put our dogs in situations where it pigeonholes us into using or feeling like the only choice is using punishment. And we could just back up a little bit and go, you know what, maybe I don't put my dog in that situation. Maybe I have this really easily, easy solution to, um, not having to feel like I'm forced to use an aversive to mm-hmm. prevent my dog from making the wrong choice. And I know we've talked about this before, um, you know, not putting your dog, you know, we have the bigger brains. Don't put your dog in a situation where them doing what their brain is innately telling them to do, like run around and sniff things mm-hmm. is going to put them in danger. Don't do that without having some training in place to help them make a better choice or a safer choice. Or if they're incapable of making a safer choice, don't put them in that situation. Um, And I think, you know, Kayla, you talk about the work you do with Barley. That's really, really high level work that requires a ton of training and a ton of skills and a ton of nuance. And that's very different from the idea of, you know, somebody with their brand new eight month old lab that they just adopted saying, I'm going to go out into the back country and let my dog off leash. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, the amount of work that Barley and I have done to get to the point where <clears throat> I'm totally comfortable having him off leash and unmuzzled in a prairie dog town because I'm that confident that he's not going to grab a prairie dog. Right. But the risk, right. if he were to decide to grab a black-footed ferret, is high enough that I'm yeah. I'm going to use other tools. You know, we're at the point <laughs> where I feel comfortable walking my dog off leash through a prairie dog town. If you don't feel comfortable with that, then you shouldn't be walking your dog off leash through a prairie dog exactly. town. <laughs> Um, whether or not you have an, a shot collar, because the other argument that I, I and I have gotten into this argument with some of my coworkers is if your dog actually had a black footed ferret in its mouth, <laughs> would blasting him with a shock collar actually help the situation? Because I don't think it will. I understand that our contracts say that we have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might help if your dog is about to Grab chase or, or yeah. is starting to mm-hmm. dig. But if he's already caught whatever it is he's catching, blasting him with a shot collar is not going to help. Well, next, I I would guess that's going to make him clamp down. Harder. Right. I was just going to say, you know, mm-hmm. I just um, m- me and my staff just watched just at the uh, Michael Shikashio workshop a couple weeks ago um, on aggression in dogs and like. Um, safe handling tactics. And he did a portion on um, breaking up fights and he was like, don't add pain. Like if dogs are latched onto each other, you don't want to add pain because that generally makes them dig in more. Um, And I feel like that's a very analogous situation. Okay. We need to talk about this afterwards, (laughs) but I guess I'm curious, like, does he not then want you to do, if you, if you're introducing two shelter dogs or two dogs on leash and they're both wearing slip leads and one is latched on, does he not want you to do the choke out? Like lift it up. That wasn't mentioned. No. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. That wasn't mentioned because a lot of the time it can make them dig in harder. 
you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. You could kind of mm-hmm. activate that. Like, what is it called? The like, yeah, it's that you know, re- when you like push onto yeah, a dog's chest and it like, pushes reflex back or something in. like that. Yeah. Oppositional mm-hmm. And reflex, especially if thinking, they are um, attached, like if one dog is latched onto the other, any t- attempt to like pull, yeah. pull. Yeah. And this yeah. is why the choke out needs to go straight, straight up, up versus yeah. pull back because yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, a lot of the time adding pain or discomfort to the situation intensifies the dog's reaction instead of stopping it. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I can see that Kayla for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like both arguing for and against the use of shock collars and conservation dogs. I also just need to know a little bit about like, what's so special about a black footed ferret? I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Like for our listeners, like is that, is that an endangered species? Oh, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, what is with this part? Um, Yeah. So black-footed ferrets are um, the rarest mammal in North America. At one point, they were declared extinct because we thought there were literally none of them left. Um, And then there were 18 found in Wyoming in a single colony. We captured them. We brought them um, to a breeding facility in Colorado. Um, It's a super cool facility. They like retrain them to hunt and everything. So they're amazing dogs that are used (laughs) to train them. Um, (laughs) It's a little brutal, I'm sure. Um, And now we're back up to a population of between three and 600. Wow. Um, so yeah, they're just, they're incredibly rare. They're an incredibly vulnerable population. They used to be found basically from like Alberta to Northern Mexico. And now there's like probably 10 isolated populations and don't quote me on that exact mm-hmm. number, but there are, there are chunks of them. Um, and these reintroduction efforts are just really, really challenging. Um, and we use the conservation dogs to identify um, active burrows where the ferrets are so that we can figure out how many of them that you released from these captive breeding situations are actually surviving mm-hmm. and um, doing well. This really is a situation um, where like a dog killing one has a huge yeah, impact. Yeah, huge Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this, it, it, like, as I said, like, guys, if my dog killed yeah. a single prairie dog, like, meh. Right. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, sorry, I very much so don't want that. Out there, but like, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're okay. Versus, yeah, these <clears throat> black-footed ferrets are they're a very very vulnerable and if population anyone, so they're i mean you need to google these things because they they are so cute and they're just there's such a cool story too for like where the conservation detection dogs are so useful because they're they're nocturnal hmm. they live underground and they live alone so like trying to set a camera trap mm. to figure out how they're doing or like trying to you can't use telemetry underground mm. um and even when you can like the the telemetry collars that the the ferrets would wear they have to be like this perfect amount of tightness <laughs> so that the ferrets can't oh slip gosh, out of them cute. but they also don't dig into their skin so they're just like they're a super difficult species to study so we do a lot of really cool work combining the dogs with um telemetry and camera trap work and kind of using all three tools to figure out how these guys are doing and again it just the dogs are very very useful um but it also is a really high risk situation in which to use conservation dogs like anytime you're using a dog to find a live animal it's it's risky Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and they're more likely to activate a prey response than um, tortoises, um, right. which is another live animal target that we or do. Zebra at muscles. Work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The ze- well, and also zebra muscles are invasive, so you know what? Screw them. Let's eat them all. Right. Uh, they, they taste good. Um, I've had friends be like, "Why don't we just eat the zebra muscles? Um, they're the size of your pinky fingernail, and they taste mm. bad." So sorry. Delicious. They're also filter feeders, so if they're not in clean water, you're Ooh, gonna yeah. get sick. Anyway, we're not not supposed to be talking about Speaking of the size of your pinky nail and food, 
I'm no, out. no, it's gonna. I think go she's on. trying to segue into. I'm segueing to our to our last uh, myth bus because do you say that like treats should be the size of your pinky now? Yes. And yeah. our that last. Was slick. Was that was that really slick, slick Marissa. Slick, right? Way to go! Um, I knew where you were going with that. <laughs> Kayla's our face last was like, "What's that myth?" Heck? No, I was picking up what you were. Yeah, I totally on. lost you. I'm sorry. <laughs> our last myth that we're going to cover today is. Um, you should never feed your dog from the table or I don't want to feed my dog from the table because I don't want to make them beg or I don't want to feed them human food because I don't want to make them beg. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the interest of being honest about the potential pitfalls of our training methods, <laughs> um, I'm going to say up front that you absolutely can use food as bribery. Food in training can turn into bribery if you don't use it correctly. Or in some cases you bribery is the correct thing to do. We call it luring, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But the simple act of feeding your dog human food um, is not what's going to cause them to beg. So you could, I always tell my clients, you could feed your dog their kibble from the table and it's going to cause them to beg at the table. Um, Oh, I love how you say that. I mean, right? Yeah. Like literally, yeah. <laughs> if, I've, if I set my dog's bowl of food in front of me at the table that I'm sitting yeah. at right now, which is where I eat, um, and fed them piece by piece, and that's all they ever ate from the table, they would beg mm. from the table. Yeah. <laughs> so the what causes begging is that the dog is reinforced for what they're doing. And that's what that's how behavior works is dogs do what works to get them what they want. And they look at the context of where that and how that happens. And we call that the contingency. So what behavior makes the reinforcement happen? Um, but it's not the, it's not the human food. It's not the people food itself. That is the mechanism by which that happens. Um, it's the behavioral contingency. So, um, simply using human food as reinforcement and training is not going to create a behavioral issue. It's how you use it. Mm -hmm. So the presence of the food itself is not the problem. It's either poor timing, poor contingency. Um, you know, you're not, there's something about the way that you're using it, that you're reinforcing the wrong thing or something that you didn't mean to. Um, so I think we even did a, um, God. We did a five myths about food. Yes, training. and I also wrote a blog yeah. post about mistakes in mm-hmm. using food. And there, <clears throat> excuse me, there are a lot of potential mistakes in with using food and training that you want to avoid. Um, but when you do it well and you do it effectively, it's it's stunning. Um, yeah. And that goes for any any reinforcement. Um, that the dog is willing to work for. Mm -hmm. So you could throw, uh, uh, like if your dog is obsessed with tennis ball, if you have a barley, right? (laughs) And you, and every time barley comes up to the table and you throw a tennis ball, he's going to start begging at the table for his tennis ball. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, (laughs) which is why we don't do that. Exactly. Well, and I think, I think there's two important points here. Dogs don't have a concept of human food. To dogs, dog food is what dogs eat. Yes. So whatever it is, and that includes, oh my God. So at my riding lessons the other day, we had a horse that fold two days before. Oh, I know where this I is got going. To witness, <laughs> yeah. I got to witness the the owner's two border collies playing tug of war with a placenta mm. yesterday. Oh um, So that is dog my food. God. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh my God. You know, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Farm dog stuff. So whatever. never feed your dog horse um, placenta from the table <laughs> if you don't want them to bed. 
Yeah. This episode <laughs> has gotten really like dark in some places. <laughs> kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but I think the point is your dogs are going to eat whatever it is they're going to eat. You don't have to teach them to want human food right. by feeding it to them. Like right. whether or not you use high value quote unquote human food as a reward is not going to impact whether or not your dog wants it because he's going to want it either way. He can smell it. I trust was going to say like my um, thoughts about dogs smelling versus tasting is smell is probably really similar for as taste is for us because they smell so yeah. well. So I don't know that there's much of a d- distinction between them being able to smell like a piece of pot roast from f- three feet away and actually tasting it. <laughs> like, yeah. So sorry. <laughs> That's okay. And then, and I, I think I made that point pretty clumsily, but the other point that I wanted to make is I kind of frame it in the context of how would you like your dog to beg? Right. Because your dog is probably going to beg in some way, mm-hmm. shape or form. Um, uh, you know, and your options are teach your dog that how he, you know, that maybe that it's never, ever an option and that you just put your dog in the crate while you eat. And there's nothing wrong with nothing that, in my opinion. Um, no. Or, you know, I call it teaching my dog to go long. Um, if he goes and lies down on his bed while I'm eating, I throw him food. Yeah. So he is begging by getting out from under me and lying on his mm-hmm. bed. Um, and And I think it's for me, it's helpful to kind of frame it that way instead of saying that I've taught him to go lie on his bed during mealtimes, which is what I've done. But I've taught him that an effective way of begging, an effective way of getting me to share my food is going away rather than being underfoot. And that's just a lot less embarrassing when I have guests over. Um, so yeah. I, I, I and I find clients seem to enjoy that sort of phrase framing of. Yeah. How do you want him to you beg? Know. That's brilliant. And you can feed your, yeah, I, I'm feeding him from the table. I am literally like pulling a, po- a part, part of my food mm-hmm. and throwing it to him. But he's not sitting at my feet or drooling on my knee because he's learned that that is not an effective way to get the food going and lying on his bed is. Yeah. One of my favorite. So I think we need um, to wrap up unless there's like anything left. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite stories about that is I worked with a family um, <clears throat> who, this was a couple of years ago, and it was a, a couple and their five children under 10, um, all Ooh. boys. Yeah. <laughs> and they had just adopted a pit bull puppy, like an older pit bull puppy. So like maybe six, five, six months old, wasn't like a baby baby. And, um, they, uh, all sat around this huge kitchen Island to eat their dinner. And the little puppy would just, they were on these taller stools and the puppy would like jump and claw and, and grab their clothes to try to get to the food. And they had never fed her any of their food from the table. Like it was a very strict rule that she Uh did not get any food from the table because they didn't want her to continue begging. Well, guess what? Every meal she was mugging them for food. So what we did was we gave each uh, member of the family a little bowl or cup that they sat next to their plate with treats in it. And sometimes those treats were quote unquote people food, hot dogs, cheese, whatever. And anytime lucky the puppy had all of her feet on the floor, they were to throw her a piece of food. And that was how we started. So pause on the floor means she gets this volley of food thrown at her. And then if she has her butt on the ground, she gets the volley of food. And then if she's laying down, she gets the volley of food. And within weeks um, this puppy was laying down on the carpet six feet from the island and didn't touch a single one of them throughout their meal. Yeah, that's um, amazing. Yeah, and, and all with people food. They used like pieces so of chicken. And, and coming from oh, the table. 
too. Yes. Right. Like also right. coming yeah. from that yeah. coming yeah. from the table. Yeah. And the kids loved it. They thought it was hilarious. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, she was getting human food from the table and that was what fixed her problem. Yeah. <laughs> and her problem was begging. Her problem was begging and she had never gotten yeah. people food. So, um, so yeah, it's not about what you're using. It's about how you use it. Absolutely. So Marissa, do you want to add to that? I know you didn't really get a chance to chime in. <laughs> no, I think, I think that, that that was great. I love that, that that's a wonderful example because you're sort of busting like where it's coming from, but you're absolutely right that it is how you're using the food that can either hurt or help the situation. So yeah, in that absolutely. situation, I love the idea that you were delivering the food away, right? Which is mm-hmm. why you got that, that behavior of lying down and moving away, which is really mm-hmm. nice or sorry, moving away mm-hmm. and lying down. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. Treat delivery. All right. Treat delivery. Well, and especially that's so much easier and cheaper than like a treat and train. Yes, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Because you could get a really similar effect by just putting Especially a treat train. Especially when you have like five children that you have to feed. <laughs> yeah, but like, I don't know about you guys, but I've not yet convinced a client to I get just a treat did. and train. Oh, yeah. wow. Because we're doing two dogs, desensitization and counter conditioning with the one dog is barking and then the other dog. And she can't, she can't be in two places at once. Mm-hmm. And she, and it's actually, it was on sale. I was like, Yeah. Oh. Cool. I've gotten clients to get like furbos and a couple others or like yeah. cameras for separation anxiety. Because that's fine. Anyway, um, just to see I'm your dog. That, be, I love my be, furbo. Be being able to see your dog. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm sad that treat and train technology hasn't gotten any less expensive over the years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. It's still like a significant investment. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody needs to make a generic one or something. Totally. All right. Well, I think we're gonna wrap it up. Um, thank you guys for joining us today. If you have any other myths that you want busted or not, maybe, (laughs) maybe there's some conventional wisdom floating around out there that we can actually, um, validate, Mm -hmm. um, leave us a comment, send us an email, send your carrier pigeons or strap a letter to a black footed ferret. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we'd love to hear your feedback. Um, thanks for joining us. I'm Ursa Acri, a co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. You can find us online at canismajortraining.com. And I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward in Boulder, Colorado. And you can find me online at pauseandreward.com. And I'm Kayla Fratt, the owner of Journey Dog Training. You can find me online at journeydogtraining.com. One last shout out and thank you to Marissa. We love you. We, uh, we, I love you guys as well. <laughs> I'm like, we love we. you too. I'm like, wait, you there's one of me. <laughs> <laughs> go forth and do amazing things. We know you will. So, thank you. Yeah. Um, before we go, we want to make sure that you subscribe to Canine Con- Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. And you can also contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. And that's the word canine all spelled out. We would love to hear from you. Our theme music is called Funny Song, and it's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by the amazing James Eady at beheard.org.uk, and our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram, at walkers underscore username. <laughs>